Oh, it's good right. to eat. Second, you, you, quote, you mentioned it, but this is an actual quote from the article. Rich people tend to own unsexy businesses. Basically, they're value investors, Zoogles. That was the line. When I read that line, I went, Skippy. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. There's blood in the streets. Blood is in the streets. Slow you clap over there? Over here. You clapping I'm over there? S- I'm just having so much fun, man. This is great. Again, I'll do what I did last week. I'll apologize if you're not having fun, but... Skippy's having fun, and I'm pretty sure Dougal's is having fun. There's starting to be some deals out there. There, oh, there, there are. It, it is so fascinating to watch. It's so fascinating to watch, man. And it, it's because it, it's it's past this point, right? When things start to drop, and you go, oh, "Is this just like another tiny little thing?" Right? We're, we're way past that point now, yeah. and so there are actual deals, like individual deals. The market still, as we talked about, still is just like where it gets to every so often but individual companies oh man they're just they're just swimming out there with sharks circling around love it that's really fun that was one of the highlights of my week another one of the highlights of my week is happening right now for the those of you who can't see Dougal's on video can't see this but he's uh traveling some crazy hotel in uh california and he basically looks like he's hiding out in a dungeon no (laughs) lights on I got, I got to hold up the newspapers again to make sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Seriously, worried about hotel management and yelling at him or something. Exactly. Like, exactly, exactly. Impressive stuff, Douglas. They put me in the cellar. <laughs> oh, can we can we hop into this this fishbowl situation? Please do. There's I, so much to cover. I read this New York Times article this week that I just I think is great. Right, good writing, a uh, really interesting topic. It is called. The rich are not who we think they are, and happiness is not what we think it is either. And uh, for the first part, who the rich are, it touches on this piece called Capitalists, or this research report, Capitalists in the 21st Century. And what they did in this was looked at all the American taxpayers to figure out who dominated the 0.1%. So it's the question of who are the rich? And as the title says, not who you think they are, 0.1%. More than 140,000 Americans are earn more than $1.58 million per year. All right. So that's the, that's that group. And it's not, I mean, obviously up there are the, the Bezos and the Musk and whatnot, but it's, but that's not who dominates it. Yeah. Um, this is, I thought about you so much when I was reading this because it's talking, you know, you're always talking about you're investing in a bunch of heap of garbage burning, yep. you know, in the streets. And these are not sexy businesses at all. So they're, Owners of quote unquote regional businesses like auto dealerships, beverage distributors, right? And uh, what is a beverage distributor is the the question of the of the article basically. But I found that to be really interesting. I'll, I'll pause so you can react and then throw a couple more things out there. It's a really good article. Um, one of the, there's a couple of books that I keep in my library with like multiple copies at all times. Uh, one that relates to this line of thought is called Happy Money by Elizabeth Dunn. If you haven't uh, read it, you should. And if you want a free copy, shoot me an email and I might have one for you. It's such good stuff. So the quotes that jumped off the page with this specific article, but it all ties together to the other research that I'm just fascinated with as it relates to who is happy and who is 
successful by this definition of success. I put that in quotes because there's there's a lot of factors at play there. But so first quote, salaries don't make people rich nearly as much as equity does. If you're listening to the Skippy and Douglas podcast, you already know that, right? R is um, greater than G, man. R is greater right. than G. Second, you you quote you mentioned it, but this is an actual quote from the article. Rich people tend to own unsexy businesses. Basically, they're value investors, Douglas. That was the line. When I read that line, I went, Skippy. <laughs> All right. Let me let me move on. So the first is the first part of the article is kind of like, who are those people? What do we know about them? What takeaways are that? The second and third part of the article shift gears slightly. Here's the next quote I'd highlight. Many of us work far too hard at jobs with people we don't like, and that is not a likely path to happiness. A doctor and an economist and Alan Brunson found that work is the second most miserable activity of all the 40 activities studied and only being sick in bed makes people less happy than working when you're in one of those miserable jobs. I had parenthetically. Yeah. And there's a, uh, one of the things I liked about this is toward the end, it was like, this is obvious stuff, but I think there was, there was maybe even a question in there that said, do you need a scientist to tell you, <laughs> to tell you these things? But <laughs> But that's that's like typically actually how things are, right? That the the stuff that you need to do in life, the stuff that makes you happy, is not hard to know. It's just hard for people to execute. Yeah. Like even similarly, like we talk about in investing, it's really, 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 really hard to beat the market. So if you are whatever, 98% of investors, just buy the market, forget that you even invested and like go home. Like it's easy. We all know it really hard for people to do right mm -hmm. i think that this is this is super similar from the happiness train like the things that they said are the tops that make people happy it's like sex like how many people did you need to talk to right to to figure out that that was like a a pillar of like happiness for folks right but but uh but sometimes it's it's a getting the data behind it i think is like helpful for folks to kind of know his own equities two is maybe don't overlook unsexy businesses three is if you're totally miserable at work consider alternatives and four might be spend a little more time in nature they specifically talk about uh, people that move to big cities and therefore sacrifice their ability to get outside and how that's detrimental to your long-term happiness again something we knew Douglas, right pretty straightforward yep. stuff but Gosh, if you hit those four checkpoints on a daily basis, uh, life's going to be a lot better. One of the, on the uh, unsexy business train, one data point I thought was fascinating was, so they, it talks about building a local monopoly. That's like one of the, the learnings here. And according to their estimates, more than 20% of auto dealerships in America fit into that $1.58 million per year yep. bucket. 20%? That's huge. One in, one in five. But... Uh, but I did like that they said that doesn't mean like go out and try and buy an auto dealership because these auto dealerships know they have it good. And so most likely, if you can get into that auto dealership at a good price, you're probably getting into the wrong auto dealership. You're, you're, you're getting into one of the uh, the 80% there. But yeah, I thought that was that was really interesting too. The other point, there's this data point that's been going around for quite a while with regard to when money doesn't have an impact on happiness. And uh, so $75,000 a year, what it says is like that data point. And so that seems to be debunked, but there is diminishing returns. It says you need to keep doubling your income to get the same happiness boost after that, that point in time. 
You know, I, I'm such a money happiness nerd, if that's an actual thing, that I read all these articles. And every six months, people go back and forth on this $75,000. I'll give a little background there. Basically, the idea is it's hard to be super happy with your life if your basic necessities aren't met. So, right, if you don't have a decent place to live, uh, food, all the other necessities. And in most places in America, around $75,000 gets you all those things without worry. And so once you get above that, there's definitely diminishing returns. Now, how drastic those diminishing returns are gets hotly debated and, and changes. Very few people say that you won't probably be like slightly happier if you make 250 k a year over $75,000 a year. But the that correlation is not nearly as drastic as you would think. So if your basic needs are met, then it really becomes important to think about how you spend your time and how you spend your money to maximize, well, and I shouldn't even say maximize, with happiness in mind, right? Dougal, so one of the most classic things you can do is buy coffee or a beer for a friend because the, the relative money that that costs you is not super meaningful if you're above $75,000 a year. And what you guarantee is that you get to spend time with someone that you really care about in doing that act of spending your 10 to $20 on a coffee or a beer. Like it's the return on investment for something like that is massive in on the happiness train, right? I feel like, I feel like you're trying to get free beers out of me. Uh, absolutely. And all the listeners to the pod. Yeah, you can well, buy skip well, a beer. Yes. <laughs> we'll have a special event called uh, the, the Happiness Train, and it's basically the listeners can show up and buy us stuff. Everyone Love will it. be happier. Love it. Uh, simple concepts, data backed. Think it's just like super powerful. I I loved reading this article. New York Times. All right, what's in your fishbowl? Quality journalism. There's a whole bunch of stuff here, Deagles. We talked about this last week, so let me just tie up a loose end. We talked about the impact of the drawdown on from like the top 10 stocks in the S&P 500 and then the rest of the S&P 500. And we talked about how a lot of these small technology companies without a clear cash backstop have gone down more than 75%. And then uh, the bigger names have not. So Wall Street Journal did an awesome breakdown of this piece. Uh, this was midweek, which is crazy. So at the time they did this, uh, the stock market was down like, 50, the S&P 500, I should say, was down 15-ish percent. And as you know, midday Friday, for a brief time, it was down 20% from peak. So we officially entered a bear market for a short time. Um, it rallied away from that. And listen, I should just tell the listeners, I was cheering. I was sending you text messages. Bear markets are fun. That's when the deals come out. Oh, yeah. We were exchanging a Snoop Dogg Cripwalk gifts. So good. Yeah, you, you really did an excellent job there. But back to this, right? If you look at Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, Alphabet, Meta, Tesla, uh, NVIDIA, which I, I still go back to that one video, that guy going, NVIDIA, NVIDIA, <laughs> <laughs> and Netflix. That's roughly the, the drawdown from those stocks is roughly half the total drawdown in the S&P 500. And if you're a total novice and you don't know how the S&P 500 is weighted, it's weighted by market capitalization, which means the impact of something like Apple or Microsoft is drastically, like many, many, many times what the impact of the smallest companies in the S&P 500 is because those companies 
all right, have two trillion dollar market caps, and your other company might have a market cap of thirty million bucks. So I just thought that was interesting. Wanted to tie up a loose end there. Basically, the top half, those top uh, eight to ten names, are responsible for half the total decline, and then the rest of the stuff is responsible for the other half. Mathematically, makes a lot of sense given market cap weighting, but still, just seems really. It's like it just sounds weird, right? Naturally. One of the, I am, this market is a, it's fascinating. This economy and market, as we've talked about, is fascinating for a number of reasons. One of the things I'm most curious about is there's so much like with those companies, I'm especially like a NVIDIA in there. uh, There's a lot of PE contraction that's happening. So the price to earnings ratio had gotten out of whack across a number of companies. And now prices are coming back down, right? To start to go mean reversion a bit down towards something that's median, but earnings are not getting hit all that hard, right? They might be missing expectations because expectations were out of control. But even from an expectation standpoint, it's still something like 70% of companies are are uh, outperforming. I think last yep. I saw, it might, might not be after this week's earnings. I'm not sure that sticks, but but so you know, I'm curious as to what that means for the the other 490 companies, right? You didn't just name yeah. there. Does the market actually start to fall out? And it, it depends on a number of factors. But I'm I'm really curious. Yeah, so you're gonna get me fired up, and and we might go straight into my most recent arbitrage idea. That's a research recommendation. But a couple things there, Dugos, you're totally right. What's happening though, like with retail stocks, is not necessarily massive earnings misses. The earnings look solid. It's that the expenses look scary because of the inflationary pressures. So Target was down uh, 25% one day this week, basically on potential cost increases. And that hit the whole retail sector. So there's some there's some concern on more than just the earning side of the house, right? Yeah, well, I mean, it's costs are a part of earnings there. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm not a doctor, but... <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, I oversimplified. Yes, uh, I, th- I think what you're saying though is uh, at least partially it's about uncertainty, is, is, <laughs> no. is what it's about, right? So actually, what I'm saying is, uh, right, earnings are backwards looking, right? So that's what our costs were versus what yeah. we actually sold. Yeah. And when you see costs escalating quickly, like today you know the ramifications for what that's gonna do for the future. And you're not sure if you actually have that pricing power to keep earnings at comparable levels. So, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> crack me up. Yeah, it's future earnings versus past earnings. And yeah. I, was talking to, I was talking to someone this week and we were just discussing how since the US has gotten off the gold standard, right? About 50 years ago, got off the gold standard, deflation's not really a thing anymore. Right, whereas deflation used to be a thing, we I'm not saying it's not possible, yeah, but yeah. we 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 can we can effectively say that deflation won't happen because there's no tie to the gold standard. In that world, it's not like inflation is at eight percent, and so prices then go up, and then there's deflation that's going to bring prices down. Right? Especially when you're talking about goods like this, it's more so that now like prices are just higher, and so to your to your um, pricing power. Thing. like if costs are just higher and in some cases like with supply chains the supply chains ease there might be some deflationary pressure that comes on there but across the board to the everyday consumer i think prices like 
prices are probably going to have to go up to cover some of these costs. And so it's a, there's a, there's a, a compounding effect. I think that happens from, if you try and pass on the prices to your consumers, are consumers going to be able to pay those prices? Does that then bring down revenue? And then what happens to your costs? It's like a, there's just a lot of uncertainty about the future uh, in that regard. Is it the gold standard kind of hilarious in retrospect? You know, the Senator from Arizona really wants to expand mining because uh, she's concerned about Chinese dominance when it comes to rare metals, right? But if the world was still effectively on the gold standard and you had all these really sophisticated mining techniques, the world's richest country could end up being about like who had the right mountain that had the right biological chemistry if that's even a word <laughs> and just who discovered it and then all of a sudden they'd become this superpower simply because of the rare metals that exist within the lands that were arbitrarily assigned to them like is is that a crazy thing to think about it is and for different reasons though it's a, it's kind of what happened after world war one for the u.s not because of mountains necessarily after world war one the u.s started uh, amassing lots and lots of gold because we weren't like our infrastructure wasn't as damaged as other countries like yeah. in europe and so we just we ended up being the superpower with a whole bunch of gold like we just had the gold and so to your point it's kind of like whether it was because of mountains or whatever you just now now you're a superpower because of a bunch of go- uh, bars that are sitting under <laughs> under a in a fort right or under wall street or wherever these gold bars are <laughs> Under Wall Street, baby. Well, that's the, um, I'll mention this now. I, we might do breakdown next week because I'm only halfway through, but I'm reading a book I really like right now um, called The Power of Crisis. Just came out this week. Way too much geopolitics and stuff for my normal presence, but it breaks down so much of what we talked about in terms of an investing hypothesis with US-China relationship, the US-China relationship, the fact that you can take the Charlie Munger point of view, which is they have to get along. Like it's common sense for them to get along because they're both so dependent on each other for future growth. Um, but then it also breaks down some of the challenges there and what past administrations have done to either help or hurt that relationship. Really, really good book based on the first couple chapters. We might dive into that next week. But one of the things that book also mentioned more on the, the show because I like history, Dougals, is uh, just the locational advantage that North America and the United States has because we're far away from our typical enemies. And so that's led to economic advantages as well. We're just part of less wars simply based on the fact that we're lucky with our location. And when there are wars, again, our infrastructure isn't as damage like we go to the war the war doesn't come to us i think yeah yeah, yeah. i feel yeah. like you were you had this this point that you were going down and i uh intercepted it and took us down like a deflationary world war one gold bars oh um, no i mean my point is if you read the uh joel greenblatt book how to be a stock market genius and i don't know if we've dropped that in the last year on the show but it's another good book to read if you're told stock market and investing nerd he spends a lot of time talking about arbitrage opportunities with mergers, right? We have talked about this in a roundabout way. We've talked about Twitter a bunch in part because Musk is unpredictable and crazy people, smart people are often unpredictable. 
we talked about the Twitter opportunity still. I mean, I wouldn't touch Twitter right now because Musk is unpredictable, but the purchase price was what? $54 a share. And last I looked, it was in the thirties. Like there's some premium there, assuming he actually goes through with the deal. I think we touched on Activision and Microsoft's potential purchase, Microsoft's purchase. And guys, this is from memory. So these are research recommendations, not investing recommendations, but I think their purchase price is 95 bucks a share and the stock's currently in the 77 range. It's it's one of these things where there's some opportunities starting to pop up. And I like that because as a fundamental value investor, if you find an arbitrage opportunity with an acquisition, it can be really exciting. You can make great returns in a short amount of time. The one that's most interesting to me is Kohl's. Are you familiar with Kohl's uh, in terms of the store Dougals and then in terms of the potential acquisition? It's a department store. I've bought shoes there before. That's what I know. But <laughs> uh, They've expanded some relationships. So they have a new CEO in recent years who has expanded relationships with Stephora, if I'm saying that right. Um, you can now do your Amazon's returns there. So it's been like a boring, ugly retail business for a long time. Uh, there's nothing exciting about this business. Current price to cash flows are like in the threes. I mean, it's just beaten down. No, no one is excited about the prospects of Kohl's uh, long-term. But a few months back, they got an acquisition, uh, an unsolicited acquisition offer, somewhere between 64 and $70 a share. So we'll just call it mid-60s, right? Current is 39 bucks a share. And the current management has said that the previous offer and in the mid 60s was too low and that they're open to a potential acquisition. So they've gone out to the market to accept bids. Now, the management says bids is due in the next couple of weeks, and they've been very excited at the entrance and uh, about the interest in potentially acquiring the uh, company. I'm trying to find the actual quote here just so. CEO Michelle Gass added that the retailer is pleased with the level of interest. So you currently trade for $39 a share. You have an offer at more than $64 a share, which you've deemed as too low, and you're pleased with the level of interest. I'll, I'll go into the bear case in a second, but to me, the bull case is like, there's a pretty decent delta there for a company that consistently makes money and is about as unsexy as it gets acquisitions are never guaranteed but what am i missing here well you said you had some items on the the bear case so that's i mean that's that's, that's probably that do you before <laughs> before that taking yeah. arbitrage opportunities in general is that something that you have done on any real frequency uh, yeah, I, I have done it not in the past two or three years because the stock market has been so highly valued that there's just not any opportunities out here. But this is one of the things that I'm starting to see in the last few months that has me excited because uh, this is a good thing. So buying the dirt cheap, unsexy businesses that I frequently buy, those are often acquisition targets because other people start to do the math. They check the spreadsheets, as we say. And they go, oh my goodness, like this is, you know, their assets are worth this or um, my return on this is great. So that's when you can see consolidation within industry players 
and uh, I do like to play in this space. Yeah, it's it's, it's not a thing that I uh, I play around in. So I think find your analysis of it to be interesting. The bear case, I'll give you the too long didn't read case. It's um oh gosh, have you seen what ha- has happened to retail stocks recently? Like Target's down twenty five percent. Like what's happened to Walmart? Kohl's isn't nearly as strong as any of those. I know they had offered sixty. The the world has changed in the past three months. Like that's not that author is not valid anymore. And effectively, too long didn't read. The management is outright lying to us. Like I know they're saying that they have great interest and a lot of people want, want to buy the firm, but that's just complete BS. So listen, that may be true. That just seems highly unlikely to me. I don't know how the business is currently worth thirty nine bucks a share. It, it just doesn't make sense. So I'll I'll do some more research. I'll do some more digging. But um, that had me excited this week because it seems like a pretty low risk bet. This gets back to the point around how fascinating things just are right now. Like, because what, to your point, things have been so highly valued in the past. And with that, those high valuations also comes, I'm going to use this word from like a perception of the market standpoint, not from a real standpoint, but comes certainty. Like things are just going to go up and to the right. Right. And so, but in these times that are less certain, and you were talking about uh, not being able to have uh, a lot of certainty around future costs as like one example. And so therefore future earnings. And when that happens, then I I suspect that that's when opportunities like this become more prominent because things are just more doubtful. You're like, I I don't know what's going to happen. Right. With this thing. And so therefore, I'm not going to bet that the Twitter deal will go through. I'm not going to bet that the Coles thing will happen. I'm not going to bet dot, 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 dot. And so then there's there's more upside if they do. But you're you're also dealing with the risk. So I've been following all these potential acquisitions because they're interesting. And what happened in the market with Activision this week is basically nothing. And that makes sense to me because the value of that company is fixed. Microsoft said we're willing to pay this much. And then there's some uncertainty with if the government will allow that acquisition to take place. So that's why it's not at the current. That makes perfect sense. What happened to Kohl's this week is, I'm just getting the real numbers here, is trading at 48 bucks a share on Wednesday. And then everyone freaked out because Target had bad earnings or, you know, bad future prospects is a better way to say it. And it went down 13%. And I'm going... These people still have an acquisition offer on the table that they killed with a poison pill, and they're accepting other offers that you would think are going to come in higher than their previous acquisition offer if the management knows anything. So I just don't understand how the stock goes down 13%. It seems irrational to me. It's all irrational. Can I dip into into the fishbowl for some uh, further irrationality talk? Please. All right. So I'm going to go off, go off that people, people are rational and even the market, according to the title of this piece. So there's this piece at youngmoney.co. The market is wrong, bro, is the title of the piece. Overall, it hits on a lot of points we've talked about before. It does it in a, a humorous and I would say easily digestible way. And I'm going to hit on a couple of the points it brings up. So one is at a high level, it's saying that when Things are up and to the right. And by things, I mean, it, with an investment that you are making or a bet that you're making is up and to the right, you go, I had an investment thesis. It's up and to the right. My thesis is right. And then when it goes down, you scream manipulation, <laughs> t- terror, 
And like, you know, why, why is the market against me? Quote from Miss, money has a powerful impact on our psyches. When a stock goes up after we buy it, we assume that it went up because of our investment thesis, right? That's, that's the, the exact point. But uh, I love this little, he has like these little uh, stick figure drawings throughout it. And so one of the stick figure drawings that, uh, that he has with that regard is it says possible reasons for stock price increase. Thesis proven, sector outperformance, risk on markets, news headlines, solid earnings from competitors, random fluctuation. But then you are assumed reason, thesis proven. And, and so then, yeah. then each increase in price becomes your new normal. And if that's your new normal, then now you're saying you go, you go from this place where instead of saying that, that it was undervalued at one point, and now it might be either at fair valuation or overvalued. So let me reassess you instead say, okay, well, I guess this new price, it's, it's worth it. And so I still have my like qualitative investment thesis. So I'm going to let it keep riding up. It gives an example of, uh, of GameStop, right. As, as where people, when, when this thing went up 3000% from $12 a share to $400 a share, people didn't get out. It was all, you know, we were talking about a year ago, it was all HODL right? Yeah. Like we're never, we're never going to sell. GameStop's obviously worth $22 billion. And then Roku was the other example. And so I, I loved this. It was like if um, in March, 2020, when everything got hit and Roku got hit, you could have this investment thesis that Roku is a strong platform. It has strong growth. They're profitable. Uh, right now, streaming is obviously going to become a thing because people are at home. So this is your investment thesis. So you get Roku at $75. Mm-hmm. And at $75, you could say, all right, based on all my my spreadsheets, I'm going to sell this thing at $400. But as it keeps going up, you just watch it go up, you normalize the price movement and then validate your thesis and then say, I'm going to hold forever. What I don't like about, here's one thing, well, maybe not don't like. One thing I disagree with in the piece is he, when he wrote that, he said, basically you should have sold at that point. And I'd say, I don't necessarily agree that you, you should sell when a stock gets ahead of itself. I think you should follow whatever you agreed to, to yourself at the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. Or at least reassess and see if what you agreed to is still, still true or not. But I don't necessarily think you could sell. I think if you're, because you're, I believe in buying, if, if, I'm, if I'm not going my model route, I believe you buy a company, you buy a company, but when the stock is at a price that makes sense for you to buy the company. And if you're buying the company for the long term then you're going to have the stock, you're going to have ups and downs. Like you're, you're going to ride some waves. And so I don't think you should trade in and out of the company necessarily. Um, if your, your original like thesis on the company is still right. So you might disagree with that. And I'd love to talk about it. Yeah, I do disagree with that. So if I was to buy Roku, I would have done something simple, like, and it, obviously Roku is not a value investment, but I would have said, hey, it's worth 150 bucks and it's trading for $75 a share. I'm going to buy it at 75. And then I'd ride it. And t- there's no way I would have ever made it to 450 Doodles. Like I, it would have got to 150 and I would have done, redone my analysis and maybe adjusted some assumptions and maybe said it's worth two or 250 or whatever. Or maybe just said that I'm riding this momentum for a little bit. But where I would have made a, a poor decision in retrospect is I, there's no way I would have held it north of 250 bucks a share in all likelihood with those assumptions I laid out, I would have got out and I would have missed a whole other 200 potential bucks of upside. But I do think that, well, just my general philosophy is I buy things that I think are undervalued and I sell them when I think they reach fair value. 
Yeah, and I think I think that's part of the difference. Even I'm going to bring up Chamath going back for a second too. Oh yeah, hate there because you buy. I'm going to I'm going to go exclusively. I'm going to put you pigeonhole you. Okay, for a second, you like exclusively buy stocks. You don't buy companies. What? No, that's a total lie. I buy ownership in a company. What are you talking about? Well, because the reason I state that, and I'm I'm playing with words here a little bit. The reason I state that is because when I when I talk about buying a company, I'm saying like you believe in what management's doing, you believe in their business strategy, you you believe in like future growth prospects and their ability to look at competition. Like that's to me, that's buying a company. And I buy uh, stocks that I think a chimpanzee could manage, and they'd still make money. Exactly. So you're you're not. That's my view. That's by that, buying the stock, not the company. But that doesn't always mean that a, there's actually a chimpanzee managing the company. A lot of times, I get great management teams, and that's a bonus. I'm just I just want this safety net that's so strong that I don't need a superstar CEO. I just you yeah, can pigeonhole me like that if you want. You know, I'm not saying that's a bad thing by any means, but I, but I just think it's a difference because that gets back to the whole the Roku thing, right? In my in my view, is if you're saying that Roku can outmanage the competition, Roku has strong man. Like if if that's where you come from, and because of all that, I'm going to find a good price to get in, and then I'm going to believe in Roku. That's different than if you even just take Roku out of it. Like you could not know the name of the company necessarily, and still and look at the spreadsheets and decide to buy a stock. But hold on. I mean, so let's do a real life example of that. Let you remember the guy, the 19 year old guy that invested his life savings in Tesla in like uh, 2018. Yep. Okay. So it, I'm, I pulled up a stock chart. And so it was, I don't know, roughly 60 bucks a share maybe at that time. And then in 2020, when it was at like in the 300s above, he's on all these articles like, oh, uh, you know, look at this genius. And he kept being like, I'm never going to sell. I'm never going to sell. I love Musk. I love the product. I love everything. That's all great. Are you saying that, because I think you agree with me that at its peak anyway, which was 1200 bucks a share, Tesla was over its skis in terms of valuation, right? Is anyone, you're not going to fight that, are you? I'm not going to fight that. Mm -mm. Okay. So you're telling me that that guy who made a good bet when he's buying Tesla at 60 bucks a share that he should just hold forever. He should wait for it to go from 1200 bucks a share. It's going all the way back to 300 bucks a share or less. In my opinion, I think it depends on why he bought the thing in the first place is what I would well, say. But I'm telling you, he bought, he's like, I love the product. I love the, I love Musk. I love everything. It, but I'm just saying you can't completely disconnect from fundamental value of, of the thing because otherwise, you could. I mean, you could. Well, you 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 could. Uh, Amazon goes public. I'm going to use like the extreme example because I know this this doesn't happen every day. It doesn't mean it happen every century. <laughs> but uh, you Amazon goes public, and you're like, um, Bezos, believe in him. Um, I think he can turn this into a powerhouse. Dot 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 dot. You ride that thing up, whatever it went up, seven hundred percent or whatever the heck it went up. You ride it back down ninety percent, and then you ride it back up. Yeah. Okay. Twenty six thousand percent. You, if you would have bought an Amazon at IPO and truly believed in Bezos, are saying, I just ride out all those waves. And I'm saying, uh, during the peaks and valleys there, I would have sold yeah. and I would have bought. When, when it went down 95%, yep, yep, if I had yep, a true yep. belief in that company, I would have loaded up. Now, I would think that my approach would make me a few more bucks, but the, there's no real way to know. Yeah. I hear what you're saying.
Good to be. Okay, so yeah, on the same topic almost. There's a partner at Sequoia, Ravi Gupta, who had a tweet storm this week I really liked. I want to just get your thoughts on one thing he said. He said specifically talking about current founders and kind of the venture capital private equity space. He said your valuation is not what you thought it was. This market challenge may not be your fault, but it is your problem. If you raised money in 2021, your company might be worth something like a third of your last valuation. Yep. <laughs> Think about the though. It, like, take a pause. You probably get it immediately, Diggles, but take a pause. You're over there working so hard, raising money growing your staff from 10 people to 20 people to 100 people to 500 people, right? Everything looks good for your startup. You're the new hot thing in Silicon Valley, and you just raised it a value of 100 million bucks, let's say. And now, because of external market forces, your company is not worth nearly what it used to be. You, you're thinking about layoffs. You're extending your burn rate or cutting your burn rate to extend your company's life. You're trying to get to profitability faster, if at all possible. It, it's a crazy time. It's a completely different mental model. I mean, you're right. It's a, but it's, it, it's important. I mean, public market and private market, it's important to understand there's a difference between what people are currently valuing you at and the value of your company. You've said versions of that many, many, many times. Someone can tell you that your water is worth $10. You should know if it's actually worth three. Yes. Like that is the thing, right? Um, and with startups, especially, I mean, you're selling the future. You're not selling the present. You're selling the future. And that's a reason, one reason potentially why you're not on the public market, right? And so these are the times where you go, okay, well, it's time to hunker down and earn that last valuation. And hopefully you don't need to raise money. If you're, like, if you're at a point where, your valuation is going to be cut by a third. Hopefully you don't need to raise money and you've been responsible mm -hmm. to date. Now that hopefully has a whole bunch of Swiss cheese holes in it, I think, and for, for the most part, but, but yeah, but I can get where to go back to the, uh, the Bill Gurley quote or tweet that we had, you know, a couple of weeks ago, this is going to shock a whole bunch of people. Yeah. If you write it out though, well, the other thing you don't know is how long this downturn lasts. The Wall Street Journal had an awesome piece this week. Actually, the piece wasn't that good, but there's a, a graphic in there that shows basically the drawdown total time in days uh, and then versus the total drawdowns. And so you have the really quick ones like the COVID scare in March 2020, where you're like down 30% in weeks, basically. And then the rebound happens just as quickly. And then you have the really long drawn out ones like the 1930s and the 60s where it's like five or six years of headed down before you actually make the final turn that's the other piece that if you knew would be it'd be incredible to know because if you can make it to the other side of this and continue to have your company exist there will be less competition for you and when things flip, you grow out of it in a way where you can be a much stronger company potentially, but you just don't know what it's, it's like. So you just have to hunker down. And it's, it's just a, uh, it's vital in all, like we can name many analogous situations. Vital have options. Like you want to be able to move when you can move. And if you've gotten yourself, like we talk about debt all the time, if you've gotten yourself into 
some kind of debt, which I'm not even talking. I'm not even necessarily talking there about pure like credit cardy type debt, but it could be like in companies, it could be technical debt. It could be culture debt. Um, it could be actual debt. Then you just don't have options because you end up forcing your hand. Mm-hmm. And I think in situations like this, if you have um, gotten yourself into a position where you now have to bring in money and because of the situation, that money has to be at a third of your last value, it's that that becomes really rough. Right. But it's you know, planning for the future, man. Whew, man, it's going to be a thing. You're right, though. How long how long could it possibly be? And also, how long will it be for your specific sector, which might be yes. very different than the overall market? Yep. And um, it, like you like you alluded to before, your previous business strategy might have been growth at all costs. And now your new business strategy might be survive at all costs. Yep. And that could completely change the course of the decisions you make in 2022 and beyond. And it, it might make the decisions that you were making as little as two months ago look stupid and almost be a waste of money. Hindsight, man. Yeah. But, you know, to be honest, though, my hindsight is not 2020. I think there might have been a point <laughs> when it was. <laughs> um, well, you know, we, we had frequently, not frequently, once or twice a year, we have the segment where I eat crow on the show. And those are always Dougal's favorite episodes. But oh. we're going to have to take some victory laps here, too. We told you valuations are crazy. We told you some of this stuff was coming. Uh, we never gave a timeline because we're not total idiots, but here we are. Bear market. It's time. Speaking of reckoning, I am going to reach into the fishbowl. I got one more topic All right. and talk about Melvin Capital. Some like just a little bit of history for folks. No, this is another victory lap for me. I told you what was going to happen. Yeah, this this it, truth, truth. So a little bit of history. Melvin Capital started in 2014. It's a hedge fund and has been doing really well. Most of its returns have historically come from shorting stocks. So betting that these stocks were going to go down. And when I say it's been doing really well, its average return after fees was something around 30% through 2020. So that's pretty good. I mean, that's, that's very solid, as I mentioned, through 2020. So what happened? And we've talked about this on the pod before. You've probably read about this as well. I'm going to call it the great unwinding of January 2021. So during that month, the meme stock craze happened. And Melvin Capital was very, very, very bearish on GameStop. We talked about GameStop a second ago when we were talking about the market is wrong, bro. Right? They've got a short position on that thing. And it went from 12 to $400 a share, which is not, just for the record, which is not what you want to happen. If you have if a short you're position. It. Yeah. So Melvin Capital, something like $12.5 billion that they were they were managing going into this. And then at some point in January, 2021, they were losing a billion dollars a day. Yep. And so they lost about $7 billion during, during that month. This is bad. This is very bad. One of the reasons this is bad, I mean, this is bad to lose that amount, but let's just say, let's say we had a, it was just me and you and we're retail investors and we have a $12 billion portfolio. Yeah. If that's the case and we lose $7 billion, we probably go, all right, we got 5 billion. Like life yeah. will go on if you are a hedge fund. So the way that they, they make money or like uh, Melvin capital specifically, they took the 2% and then it was something large. I can't, I think it was like 30% of profits or something like that. Oh, their fees are crazy. Yeah. yeah. It, it, really I think it was fees. more than two and 20. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 
But if you lose that much from your investors, you basically have to make that up before you start, you, you go into the future or your investors are going to be like livid. And that, that's what happened here. And so Melvin Capital, they hunkered down. They were like, we're going to figure this out, went out to their investors and said, we're going to continue charging you performance fees, go forward. And <laughs> the investors gave them, I just picture like sitting across the table and the investors said some version of, I'm going, what movie was this? Was it Wedding Crashers? <laughs> I think where the, uh, the wife says, shut your mouth when you're talking to me. <laughs> that is what I picture happens when they went out to their investors. And so basically their investors said, like, no, you need to make up this money before you start charging us again. And then a $7 billion deficit is just too big effectively Tough to, to make up. Yeah. And so yeah. Melvin Capital shutting down. We talked about this when it happened. We talked about this during GameStop. We talked about, I forget the exact value they lost in that month, but it was eye-opening. This company and the the main stock picker, who is Gabe Plotkin, is, I mean, his track record is really impressive. I think he's a, a clearly a very bright and talented guy, but he ran into the same stuff that so many people run into, which is debt complex financial derivatives, shorting stuff. I mean, the returns he was getting prior to this time were really impressive, but he was getting those returns because he was playing with all these other, he's going long short and everything else. At that time, it became pretty clear that the firm was going to shut down from my perspective, Douglas, and the reason for that is you just think about your historical track record, right? When you go out and try and find new clients, even if they turn it around and make, 3 billion of the 7 billion they lost back. When you put the 10 year chart up there that says our performance versus the S&P, it's not gonna look very good. So they're gonna shut it down, of course. They're gonna shut it down in part because of the fee conversation you have. But what they're gonna do is, in my opinion, this is complete speculation, I'll just say, I'm not like reporting or anything. They're just gonna start the next fund. They're just gonna find a few people that like them. and. Instead of saying, oh, you know what? We lost 50%. That's in our historical performance. We just go, oh, we're starting from zero in 2023. Everything's great. Look at all these fancy strategies we have. Yeah, no, it's, it's exactly right. Like that's 100% what's going to happen here. And you're also right. You, you called the shutdown. Like how could this not shut down? To be honest, this was kind of like, like when I first saw this headline, it was a little bit like, um, you know, when you you see a headline of an article and it's something like, Milton Berle, who's would be like 150 years old or something like that, right? Like Milton Berle dies, right? <laughs> or whatever. I'm just naming like an old, old, old famous person. And just you're like, some old like, guy dies. Yeah. You're like, they were still alive, right? Like that was almost kind of when, when I saw like Melvin Capital <laughs> shutting down. It's like, how did they get here? Yeah. And I mean, if you haven't followed investing, you should know that this playbook happens all the time. This is what people do. Um, this guy, if I remember correctly from the previous article, was like, he was doing so well previously, he was thinking about buying a sports franchise. You know? It, now, I'm sure he's not buying a sports franchise in the next two years, but I'm sure he's doing just fine. Like, the people that pay for these wild bets are never, goes back to where are all the customers' yachts, right? Like, Yep. He's going to do just fine. He's going to start a new fund. We'll read an article about him in six years about how genius his performance has been because he's going to take the same risky bets and have good performance until the 
he takes on too much debt and has another reckoning and he won't pay for that either. Nope, he won't. Yeah, there, there'll be some article, you're right, in like six years that says um, that he was a genius by starting his fund at the bottom of the market. Yeah, yep, there we go. It, it won't mention that he <laughs> rode, that, rode his last company to the bottom of the market first, but... Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. and nothing against Gabe. I'm sure he's a great guy, but this is not personal. It's just like how this cycle yeah, works. It's how the business works. Yeah. What else you got? Well, let's wrap up with some stats. Here's some year-to-date returns for you, Dougals. West Texas Intermediate Crude up 48%. Commodities up 32%, right in the Dougals train. Yeah, I remember when you got into commodities. The FTSE 100 down 1.1%. That's I thought it was worse over there. That's not yeah, bad. It's not that bad. Uh, Japanese stocks, 8%. The DAX are down 8%. The DAX is down 12.6%. That's Germany. Shanghai index down 15%. S&P 500 down 18 NASDAQ down 27%. And as we mentioned before, the S&P at, at one time was down as much as 20%. Yeah. And at one time, you mean, <laughs> like, very recently. Yeah, like Friday. <laughs> yeah. And we'll see. We'll see where this thing goes, man. What's we'll fun about goes. that specific stat is um, we've been telling you for a while that U.S. stocks were some of the highest valued in the world. And the initial pullback in 2022 is impacting U.S. stocks more than uh, your other major indexes, which should make sense if it's actually a mirror version thing tied to valuations. That's a wrap. Hey guys, so we could use new subscribers. We really could. So hit that subscribe button. We could also use uh, reviews if you got any. A reminder that all things Skippy and Dougals are at skippyanddougals.com. And uh, we do have a special premium subscriber link on supercast.skippydoogles.com if you really like the show and want to support us. Thank you. 